Spencer Bauer from the 200 Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance, his weekly Monday appearance is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. The listener might very well be aware that baseball has started. The regular season of Major League Baseball has started. Suffice to say that that provides the bulk of the content, uh, which is to follow. For example, Masahiro Tanaka has started pitching. He's very good, and his splitter is very good. And uh, we address that. Fangraphs game odds. What are those good for? Is a question that I almost certainly ask in what follows. Also, Tommy Hansen recently signed a minor league contract with the White Sox. Perhaps a surprising sequence of events considering how good he was as recently as 2011. Finally, anyone who listens to this edition of Fangraphs Audio will learn the grounds uh, for this critique uh, by Dave Cameron of the host of this program. Congratulations. I'm now podcasting with an 80-year-old. It's Fangraphs Audio. Features Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs, and it begins right now. know why were you doing the same thing yeah we were punking each other you know i want to tell you uh perhaps has something to do with this following information dave cameron is that i'm recording this edition of the podcast uh, at least my portion of it live on tape from the press room at fenway park i can't believe they let you back in no it's uh it's that's hard to believe and actually um adding more adding more shock to that awe is this fact is that eric nadel a uh, winner of the most recent uh, Ford Frick Award. Yep. Uh, he sat down and talked to me for 15 real minutes. Did Did he not know who you were? Yeah, I think he had no idea. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he thought maybe I was from, like, Make a Wish Foundation. Or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you were the You were the kid for the day. Yeah. Right. I might have mentioned that in my email too. <laughs> and so I think that that's a possibility. He He thinks he's done community service, that's and right. I've provided some content for the site. So everyone's happy. Uh, well, until he hears the content, anyway. <laughs> like he's going to listen to it. <laughs> well, yeah, he might go to make a wish and be like, where's my podcast? <laughs> it's true. It's a good point. I didn't think about that. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. And how's Liberty? Uh, she's a little miserable today because it's raining and she doesn't like it when it rains. Yeah. Yeah. She's a Labrador who doesn't like water. Are Labradors, they, they're supposed to like water, is that right? They're, they're water dogs. It's, she doesn't actually not like water. She doesn't like water coming out of the sky. Right. She loves it in a bowl. A bowl? What about in a uh, in a miniature pool? Uh, she loves it in a miniature pool. Anything contained on the ground that she can drink or play with is great. Yeah. Like water falling on her head from the sky, not not so good. And how has the uh, – this is absolutely – I'm including this in the uh, final edition of the podcast. How has the dog park been? Uh, the dog park's been good the last few days. It's, we've had some pretty nice weather over the weekend. It was uh, low 70s, high 60s, not humid yet. Uh, so, you know, a, a good amount of people at the dog park. Yeah, I would, I'm gonna have to tell people that this is a strong dog park. A lot of, uh, I think that one thing that they do well there, and maybe this is the case of other dog parks as well, is that there's a section for smaller and a section for bigger dogs. Yeah, I think that's almost every dog park either has that or, or most of them at least have that is. You don't really want like little, you know, mini chihuahuas playing with great dames. Right. Yeah, well, I think it's smart. And I, I also think that there were some, um, real fun dogs over there. There were there were yeah. some fun dogs. I would say this weekend there were some not so fun dogs. Not that they were mean, but they were, uh, you know, 
antisocial. We had a, we had a few like uh, dogs that needed to be on Prozac over the weekend. Oh, okay. Well, I don't think I don't know if they have Prozac for dogs. Someone should invent it. I'm sure. I think they do. Yeah, I think anything. So it's, it's a billion dollar industry. Pet, okay, pet well, care. there you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would imagine uh, if someone hasn't invented it, they've now been inspired to. Yeah. Uh, let's see. The main story for the day. The main story. I don't know what it, I don't really know what the main story is. We're a week into baseball. Yeah. I mean the Angels are destroying the Astros right now. That's news. Okay. Here's the thing. Here's the thing that's curious. It, it it's not so much about the player himself as maybe what we could learn from him as a case study. And that concerns uh Tommy Hansen. I believe Tommy Hansen just signed a minor league deal. He did. Uh, after getting released by the Rangers in spring think, training. Right, getting yeah. released by the Now uh, did, I don't think that this is uh, in itself is exceptional, except for the fact that to uh, let's see, 2011, as recently as 2011, Tommy Hansen was quite good. Right, he had an arm that was in shape then. Right. So what has yeah. happened to Tommy Hansen, and does it, what, it, what does that happen to other pitchers? Yeah, his arm exploded. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, he used to throw 94, and now he throws 88. Oh, that's not good. Those yeah. are, that's going to be an important six miles per hour. Yeah, I mean, that, that might be, like, drastic or slightly over overstating the loss. Uh, he might throw 90 or something. But he, his velocity is mostly gone. And with it, has gone his ability to miss bats and throw strikes. Right. So what, what was the thing? I mean, it, I'm sure it was more than just velocity or velocity in conjunction with those things. What made Tommy Hansen good? And um, and, and I guess what it, what is it that, um, you know, he's – I mean, I, you're, we're saying velocity. But what, what made Tommy Hansen good to start off with? Well, he threw hard and he had a really good curveball. Right. So yeah. th- those are good things. Right. He was kind of like, a, you know, a herky-jerky, um, not great mechanics guy who was always kind of expected to have, be a, a short burst guy. Like coming up through the minors, he was dominant, uh, posted crazy numbers in the minor leagues. But scouts were always like, well, might end up as a reliever, might end up blowing his arm. This is not a guy that anyone saw as like a 200-inning workhorse for 15 years. And he lasted, you know, basically two or three years before he blew up. And... Uh, it would appear as though he only has made two relief appearances ever in his career. Yeah, the bullpen is probably his long-term future. And do you think? Well, I mean, it ha- yeah, right. That's but it's not part of his past at all. And I'm curious if there were concerns about his longevity. Is that is that a is that a decision? I mean, it seems like a decision that uh, front offices will make about players even before they get to the major league level. Uh, I mean, is that the case? And if if so, what what is it about Tommy Hansen that uh, you know convinced Atlanta not to do that? Well, he's still pretty young. I think in general, what we see is when a guy has success as a starting pitcher, uh, teams are going to keep giving him chances to prove he can get back to being a starting pitcher until he can't. So, like you know, Scott Casimir, for instance, was never moved to the bullpen, at least not on a full time. Uh, you know, converted to a reliever basis, uh, even as he had similar problems when he went to Anaheim and lost his velocity. Um, so I think that there's some allure of saying, okay, well, we know this guy used to throw hard and used to have good stuff. Can he learn how to pitch and have success uh, even without his top end stuff? Some, some guys do. I mean, velocity loss isn't necessarily the end of your career. Uh, so I think, you know, teams generally will give young pitchers several years to try and sort things out before they just say, oh, well, you've had a bad season, you're going to the bullpen. In Hanson's case, he's probably getting pretty close to the point where teams are going to stop giving him chances to be a starter, especially if it doesn't work this year. I'd imagine next year he might be one of these guys who's coming into camp as a reliever and tries to do an Oliver Perez or something and, and revamp himself as a, as a, you know, one-inning guy. So you think that to some degree it's it's informed by age, the decision uh, to let a guy keep starting until he breaks, essentially? 
Yeah, I think so. I think if you have a guy who's, you know, in his mid-30s and starts breaking down, it's much easier to move them to the bullpen than a guy in his 20s. Okay. I, I mean, what are the what are the odds from what we know about the pitchers? What are the odds that Tommy Hansen, uh, in short relief at some point, is able to approximate what he was doing as a starter? Uh, well, it's hard to, hard to know. I mean, some of it depends on whether his uh, physical issues are just, um, you know, continuing soreness and pain and uh, things that haven't been fixed yet. I mean, if Hanson was able to overcome his injuries, there's no uh, saying that he certainly couldn't get back to throwing 93 or 94, especially in, in shorter stints. Uh, but if his arm is really just, like, completely shredded, uh, you know, it might not matter how many pitches you throw. He might just not be able to throw over 90 miles an hour anymore. Right. Yeah. It's funny that uh, he was signed by Anaheim, uh, on his way out, basically, and uh, which is a very similar story. Or I guess he he was he traded, uh, they, right, they traded, traded for him. Yeah, right, right, they traded Jordan Walden, uh, which is a very similar story to Scott Casimir, who also sort of ended that first part of his career with the Angels. Yeah, the Angels have had a few of these, uh, you know, trade for broken pitchers and watch them stay broken. Uh, buying low has not worked so well for them. And as as we speak, we have breaking news: Billy Hamilton actually got a hit. Oh, okay, yeah. His first one of the season. I think this is actually his first time reaching base this season. Right. Yeah. That's so that right. Well, Billy Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, the concern about Billy Hamilton, which I don't know if it's uh, if it's said loud enough or long enough, is that he's not a particularly good hitter. Yeah, that's a, it's a concern that you are bad at the most important part of the game. Yeah, it, it really is. It really is the most important part of the game. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, on Fangraphs, I think we've done a, a decent job over the last few years of highlighting the aspects of the game that matter that aren't hitting. I mean, you know, defense matters, base running matters, uh, obviously pitching matters. There are things that matter. Hitting matters the most. Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, you can hit less if you are, for example, uh, Matt Clausen wrote today about UNL Escobar. Right. Escobar's um, batting lines have not been fantastic of late. And, of course, they're even probably less impressive looking because he's played at Tampa Bay, which typically... Suppresses offense, but if if you play a serviceable shortstop, then your offense could be lower. But you still have to you still have to hit. Yeah. Right, and then Billy Hamilton's probably one of these guys who doesn't have to hit a lot, but he has to hit a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you know, so far this year, he has not shown that he's going to hit a little bit. Right. Uh, I mean, it's twelve at bats, but but do, uh, the the bats maybe haven't been. In, I they, actually, haven't been uh, they haven't they haven't been very good. Yeah, I think he's got like a fifty five percent strikeout rate, which you know, as a no power contact leadoff guy, not not so good. Right, you want to just get get the ball into play and and make something happen. Congratulations, I'm now podcasting with an eighty year old. <laughs> Are there any other cliches from 1925 you'd like to throw he, out? He's a player who needs yeah. to get the ball into play. That's true. Uh, your statement's to... not wrong. It's just it was phrased in the in the way of a geriatric. All right. Well, I'm staying at my grandfather's house currently, so maybe that's... this 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 could be why. Yeah, yeah. that could be it. All right. So that's what Tommy. We we discussed Tommy Hansen and know. Billy Hamilton for a minute. And Billy Hamilton for a minute. The uh, the. Well, hey, listen, uh, Tommy Hansen's career has suffered as a result of a loss of velocity. You wrote today about Kenley Jansen. Yeah, I did. He's not suffering that at all. No, he's uh, – so here's the thing you said. So so, uh, so Kenley Jansen is throwing the ball maybe like on average two miles per hour faster? Maybe three, maybe yeah. Three. It, it's t- ticked up several notches. Right. And But you were saying uh, – let's you say if I were to project 
Jansen's velocity going forward, it would be highly regressed. But I'm curious how that comment um, is informed by also what we see typically with with velocity being something that can become reliable pretty quickly. Right. I mean, I actually don't know exactly what the point is at which your, uh, you know, what they, some people refer to as the stabilization point at which you regress 50% uh, back to the mean. Uh, you know, for all the studies that have been done on these kind of like 50% regression points, I don't think I've seen anyone do one on velocity. It's certainly less than it is for almost any other outcome, but I would imagine it's at least in the hundreds of pitches mm-hmm. um, and probably, you know, Maybe like four, five, six hundred pitches, somewhere in that range. Uh, with Jansen, we're at like fifty, fifty something. So we're uh, a lot less than we need to be. Okay, but he is throwing hard, and if he if he keeps doing that, he will be somehow even even better. One assumes. Well, we don't really know, right? Like this is there's a, I mean, the post was informative, and like here's a data point. It was I tried not to draw too many conclusions and to uh, you know discourage people from drawing too many conclusions. But I think, you know, we don't really know what a harder throwing Kenley Jansen would look like. Uh, and it's possible he could have worse command. It's possible that his cutter would be straighter and even easier to hit. Uh, there's also some uh, people who have in the game who believe that big velocity spikes like this are the precursor to an arm injury, or at least the pitcher telling people that they've had an arm injury, and maybe the velocity spike was them, you know, trying to pitch through it or, you know, uh, changing their mechanics in order to try and overcome some pain. Uh, if those things are true, that could all be bad news, and maybe Kenley Jansen would be worse. I think the tough thing is it's it's hard for Kenley Jansen to be much better. Like he's besides Craig Kimbrell, he's the best reliever in baseball. Uh, you could throw Greg Holland into that mix. There's some really good relievers. Jansen's in that group already at 92 to 93. Maybe he'd be better at 95 to 96. But we don't know that for sure. We do know that generally velocity helps you gain more swinging strikes. But how many more swinging strikes can Jansen actually get? He's already in the you know highest range possible, basically. Yeah, right. And he's had, uh, I mean, he's, he's struck out about 40% of the batters he's faced as a, as a major leaguer. Right. There's, there's not too much more room to go up from there. Right. You just want him, you just want him to stay healthy. Just stay healthy, Kenley Jansen. And I think that's one of the concerns here is maybe, maybe if this, there's something to the anecdotal evidence that velocity spikes are a precursor to injury, maybe this isn't good news. I think we don't really know what it means. I think it's more just something to monitor. Okay. Well, let's monitor it then. We is that going to be the final sentence of any point that we make about baseball that's happened over the first week? Pretty much, yeah. That was kind of like the, one of the, the, the lead-in to the story was almost anything we write for the next couple of weeks, really, uh, is, you know, here's a thing that may or may not be interesting. We'll see. Okay. Hey, here's a thing who, uh, that may or may not be interesting. We'll see. And we'll see about it. It's uh, fourth presently on the uh, the war leaderboard is Charlie Blackman. Uh, I was wondering if you would uh, bring this up. You you do have a, a kind of a hib- uh, hibernated love of J- Charlie Blackman. It, it kind of went dormant for a little while. Well, he wasn't playing. <laughs> he wasn't good, <laughs> so you stopped loving him. No, you were it wasn't a fickle that. lover, Carson. Well, speaking. he was. Uh, well, that's also true. But uh, with regard to uh, Blackman in particular, it was hard to watch him play because he spent, for example, a lot of last year minor leagues. It's also harder. It's harder if the player about whom you're very excited is a field player. Um, because what does that mean? He, he means he gets, what, four four to five plate appearances in a game? Yeah. And it also means that maybe he gets, what do you think is the average number of chances for a center fielder in a particular game? Probably two or three. Yeah, two or three. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what is this? Six, seven times you get to sort of uh, interact or interact as a, you know, as a uh, viewer? 
was a thing. Right. If you were if you're only watching the game for that player, it is you know the nice thing is you can watch his at bat and then go to something else for an hour. Yeah, right. You can multitask. If you had like three or four guys that you loved that were all position players, Mm -hmm. you could, you know, maybe switch between them as long as they didn't all hit at the same time. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's about, that's going to happen pretty soon because, uh, well, of course, uh, yeah, I still, I still enjoy Charlie, Charlie Blackham quite a bit. Uh, And you you know that uh, one of the players for whom I've been beating a metaphorical drum, I don't actually have a real drum, but metaphorically being a drum for Jace Peterson. Have I yes. said, the, have I said you, those words in front of you? you you've mentioned his name a lot. Yeah. Did, yeah. You, did you notice how Jace Peterson has begun his season? I have not. Oh, he's hitting the ball a lot. Is he still like a 26-year-old in A-ball? Or? He's a 24-year-old in double-A. Okay. So, you know, not the youngest guy ever. Not the youngest, no. But he's never failed. He's far from it at any level. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there you I, go. I, I would think uh, you would be maybe beating your metaphorical drum for Mookie Betts, who I think is like oh, 15 yeah. for 15 with 14 homers or something. He's he's off to a pretty good start. Yeah, he's also off to a good start. Although he's like everybody knows about Mookie Betts now. Okay, so he's he, he's too cool for you. Well, no, it's just you you know you don't have the sense of ownership. Right. Yeah. Although he, Mookie, uh, Mookie Betts has been stolen out of your out of your graph. Look at Mookie Betts right now. God, he really he, is hitting the ball. He, he had a pretty good first weekend. It's funny. That's good. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, Tommy Hansen. Hey, here's a, uh, the Pirates have extended both their coach, Glenn Hurdle, and also their general manager, perhaps more importantly, their general manager, Neil Huntington. Right. Which means, well, so at, at certain points, it was, it was exciting, I should say, it was exciting when Neil Huntington was first hired because he seemed like the sort of general manager – that the Pirates needed because they were never going to really spend a lot of money, but he would be able to extract whatever value was possible um, in an ever more competitive uh, market, I guess, or or I mean, ever more intelligent marketplace. Yeah, I mean, he came from the Indians, and they had some history of success of, of winning with low payrolls. And uh, I think more than necessarily Neil Huntington, he kind of represented – a paradigm shift for the organization because they'd been about as old school old school gets until that point. Right, and and Neil Huntington, uh, there were some seasons uh, since he's been in charge, and, and I don't think to really surprise anyone, but there were some seasons that were not good. Yeah, no, he, he. I think before last year's success, he was probably a GM on the hot seat. Right, uh, but he, he, it's harder to be on the hot seat if you've just signed an extension. Yeah, but it's all hard to be on the hot seat if you make the playoffs for the first time in franchises like 20 year history or 25 years or something. Right. So the Pirates are doing something good, and the and ownership recognizes it. That's that's the basic point. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the kind of season the Pirates had last year is the year that gets you rewarded. Like, you know, he's built a really good young core. It's not super hard to see the Pirates contending for the next few years, at least. Uh, you know, now they've decided to keep McCutcheon and Sterling Marte and some of these guys around. If they can supplement and find, you know, the next Francisco Liriano and the next AJ Burnett and keep kind of getting these undervalued veterans to, to sneak in next to the stars they've already signed long term, they could be good for a while. Right. Do you, do you foresee, uh, of course, we, we've seen Pittsburgh, uh, improve from a, uh, just a, a pretty miserable team, um, with the years of losing behind them. Uh, into a an exciting young team with uh, a bright, at least immediate future, and seemingly um, a way of a way of doing things, conducting business that uh, portends well for is, bodes well for their long term health. Is is are they the sort of the 
the blueprint for the Houston Astros, or do you sense that the Houston Astros are going to be following the same arc at some point? Yeah, but I think the Astros certainly hope that they can make a leap like Pittsburgh did. I think they probably hope it doesn't take quite as long. Um, you know, I think the Astros would like to be good sooner than 20 years from now. So, yeah, I don't know that you want to call the Pirates, like, long-term losing Well, since streak. the Neil, I mean, the, I, I would see the, the hiring of Neil Huntington somewhat analogous to the hiring of Jeff Luna. Well, I think even with Huntington, it took what, he's only like sixth or seventh year or something. I mean, that was not an instant turnaround. I think more likely, if you were going to look at and say this is the the model the the Astros are trying to follow, would be the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, well, they were like three years of losing under Andrew Friedman, and then they went to the World Series, and they've been good ever since. Okay, right, and where yeah, where it appears as though um, Huntington was was hired before the 2008 season, so 2013 right. was more like five years, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it was his sixth year, right? Right, sixth year, right. And so, yeah. but that that didn't take as, quite as long for Tampa Bay, you're suggesting? Yeah, I think I think Tampa Bay got good in year four, and, and yeah, so good they went to the World Series and have been basically, you know, the third or fourth or fifth best team in baseball since. I think that uh, maybe Matt Swartz, maybe other people have done work uh, on this sort of uh, the correlations between strong uh, strong farms. Uh, I think Mart- Swartz had a term to, to something to the effect of non, non-market wins. Non-market wins? Does that sound familiar? That, that sounds like a thing that Matt Swartz would write. Yeah, okay, all right. But what do we know about uh, – because uh, right, right now we know that the Astros have a very good farm system. I think they were yeah. recently ranked at the top three by uh, – I think the, they were ranked number one by everybody, right? I mean, right. Aren't they like the consensus number one farm system right now? I think the Pirates were actually ranked number one by Baseball America. Really? Okay, I missed yeah. that. Uh, but well, that's it, probably probably not true anymore now that T- Jameson Tyon's having Tommy John surgery. Uh, also a possibility. So yeah. but the point is that what is it? Uh, what do we know about like? Is there like a typical number of years from that point of view, um, where where a team has one of the top, say, two, three, five um, farm systems? Like, is it, could you do an equation and figure out wh- when they'll next be in the playoffs? Well, you probably could. I just, I would imagine it's probably not very strong. It's probably like, like, you could draw a regression line and say, you know, like, if you have a number one farm system, you know, it, it equates to this percentage of your chances of being in the playoffs in next years. Uh, but there's so much noise around that. I mean, you know, it's not just that you just develop a bunch of good prospects and they automatically turn into good major leaguers. Uh, you know, some of them get hurt. Like, you know, the Cubs had a very good farm system when they had, you know, Mark Pryor and Kerry Wood and all those guys, and that didn't turn into great success for them long term. Uh, you know, and then you have the, the major league part of things. I mean, I think you can look at the Oakland A's right now, and everyone kind of thinks of them as like this money ball team that finds all these good young prospects and keeps developing young talent, and like their recent winners are almost entirely uh, not homegrown. They, you know, guys that they plucked from other teams. They've got a, a team full of guys like Coco Crisp and Brandon Moss and uh, you know, guys that they acquired in trade as bit pieces, and, uh, you know, it's not like they've been drafting really well lately, and so, um, I think that there's certainly, you know, it's better to have a good farm system than to not, and, you know, a sustainable long-term winner is gonna develop some players from within, uh, but it's not a one-to-one correlation, and I don't think there's a, any time frame in which you'd say, okay, you've had a, the number one farm system in baseball, you'll be in the playoffs in the next three years, or four years, or six years. Well, it's probably, yeah. It it probably does affect maybe the GM's job, though, right? If there's a perception that he has a good farm system and and but then nothing comes of it. Uh, yeah, right. I think if if you're a rebuilding team and you sell your fan base on years of losing because the prospects are going to be good and then the prospects aren't good, you get fired. Okay. So what does that mean for Dayton Moore? 
Uh, well, he, he just got a contract extension too because he was able to convince uh, ownership that 86 wins and a non-playoff berth was a success for them. Uh, I think he should not have, and I think an, another miserable year, a disappointing year, uh, should should be the last for Dayton Moore in Kansas City. I don't think it will be, uh, but I think this he's a good example of you know a guy who built a really good farm system and it hasn't turned into long-term success yet, and probably won't. Masahiro Tanaka uh, made his debut recently. He did. Um, and he, uh, cosmetically, there were some things that uh, did not go pres- exactly right uh, for him insofar as he gave up a home run to the first batter he faced. And, and the first batter was a failed former Yankee prospect. <laughs> right. Although, but not a bad player, nonetheless. Now, as, as Mike Petriello noted, now that he had doesn't have a tumor. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably easier to play without a tumor in your spine. I, I did not know. Why didn't I hear that story? Is because I don't ever... Because you, you were focused on Charlie Blackman. Yeah, I was probably focused on Charlie Blackman. But I feel as though, and Petriel did know this, that the story was underreported. Yeah, I think it was. And I think part of it is, you know, the Melky Cabrera got caught using steroids, and so everyone just assumed that when he was good, it was the steroids, and then he was bad, so he must be off steroids. That's an easy story to tell. Right. But seriously, zero tumors in the back is way better than... Than even one, just one tumor in the back. Yeah, you don't even want like point one tumor. Right. You, you want your tumor to be equal to zero. Right. But here's, here's the point. He gave up some runs, uh, Monsieur Tanaka, but he also pitched in a such a way that if he pitched that way every game, he would probably be the best pitcher in baseball. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, I was except was like one point eight or something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think overall the combination of sixty percent ground balls, uh, a strikeout per inning, and no walks is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that, I mean, did you, I don't know, did you, were you able to see it, or at least how? I, I, I saw the home run, uh, I watched maybe the first couple innings, I didn't get to see the rest of the start, but you know, I think overall, the stuff looked about what I thought it would, I thought his velocity was actually a little less than I was expecting, you know, there were, most of the reports on him coming into the season were that he sat 94, he certainly hit 94 sometimes, but he sat closer to 91, 92, uh, but the splitter's as good as advertised, and I don't think your fastball velocity matters all that much when you have a, a split finger, you know, a down pitch, whatever you want to call change-up splitters, split changes. Uh, when you have a pitch as good as, as his is, and you throw it regularly, and you get hitters to chase it, you, it doesn't really matter if you're throwing 90 or 96. Right. He did actually seem to, and this surprised me for how good the, the splitter was, I guess you could at least say the shape of the pitch, but he left the pitch up a little bit, and that was the problem against... Cabrera, and that was the problem against some other batters, too. Right, and I think that's going to be always the problem with those kinds of pitches, is you want to get those pitches down out of the zone, because you want hitters to think, this is a fastball, I'm going to swing at this, and then it disappears, and they swing over top of it. If it doesn't disappear, and you like hang it, they're going to crush it. Right. I saw, um, of course, I was here a couple of days ago at, at Fenway when the Red Sox and the Brewers went to extra innings, and I got to see, I mean, everyone's seen a pitch, but I was reminded of how good Koji Uehara is. Yeah, um, and he really he got to a point in that in that game where he was he was using he was getting he was getting swinging strikes on his fastball as well, and it was not you know it was not much above ninety. Right, I think that's I mean we see that with R. A. Dickey right is he his fastball is actually pretty effective because hitters don't expect it. I think uh, one of the keys for these guys who throw a lot of splitters or a lot of changeups is that their their off speed pitch looks like their fastball. And that doesn't only help the splitter, it helps the fastball, because hitters can't determine the between the two in time to make a decision on how to swing. So uh, if you're 
facing Ohara, you know, he throws a lot of splitters, maybe you're going to pick some of those up that are fastballs and think they're splitters, and you're going to swing down in order to compensate, and then all of a sudden you swung under the pitch because it was a straight fastball. Right. Yeah, I guess that pitch, I mean, perhaps this is the case with all sort of secondary pitches, but it, it, it seems to in particular have the ability to sort of uh, short-circuit the brain of the batter. Yeah, I think if you know that this guy has two pitches and they look exactly the same at the time you have to make a swing decision, that's probably pretty frustrating. Yeah. I never had to uh, face, as a uh, as an amateur ball player, never had to face someone with a lights-out split-finger fastball. I don't know about you. Yeah, I don't think I ever saw one in high school. Okay. Uh, one, uh, one thing that has been introduced this week at the at the site and which uh, upon which you commented maybe maybe more than one post is the uh, the existence of uh, pre-game game odds yeah, we, I think we just call them game odds game odds yeah but you can see them before the game that's when you see them it's true so you call them pre-game game odds is that what you're saying that's fine you can call them that that's a little unwieldy yeah it is game odds uh, so for example I'm looking now uh, the uh, San Diego's playing at Cleveland today. Yeah. Uh, Robbie Erlin uh, faces Corey Kluber. Looks like. I, th- I think the Indi- I'm, I haven't looked. I'm going to guess the Indians are 58 percent favorites. Uh, very close. 56.6. Uh, okay. There you go. Uh, maybe the, maybe the projections like Robbie Erlin a little more than I do. Okay. That is with uh, now that is with the lineups already having been rolled out. But it's been right. my understanding that that these things change even when the lineups are added. Well, so before the lineups are added, they're based on the depth charts. So we're basically looking at the playing time as proportioned based on what we have on our own depth charts on the site, which is uh, the things that, you know, power our playoff odds and projected standings. And then once the lineup comes out, uh, the depth charts data goes away, and we replace the uh, projected playing time with the guys who are actually in the lineup that day. So if, you know, you're playing the Brewers, before the lineup's posted, Ryan Braun is assumed that to get some value. If the then the lineup is posted and Ryan Braun's not playing, your odds are going to go down. And then, which uh, models real life? Right. And we what are we using? Some some log five. Yeah, basically we're. I mean, right? Odds ratio. What is log? Say, just tell me what log five means. It's like a mathematical term for like a logarithm. It's it's basically just a calculation that says if if you have two things that each have some odd of happening. When they match up, what is the expected outcome? Oh, if you were to run like a million, uh, infinite, yeah, however many, however many simulations you're going to run or whatever, mm-hmm. it's a uh, the the midpoint or the expected outcome of two things with some possible uh, uh, potential. And what, Poss- what possible potential is possible, a good, possible good, good word. Possible yeah, outcome. There you go. What can yeah. I say? How do I do a log? Can I can I do a log? Where do I get one of a log five? Do I go to sharper image? Uh, like you that? could. I bet if you walked into Sharper Engines and asked for a log five, the guy there would probably be stoned and not have any idea what you're talking about. Okay, so where do I where do I get a log five? Do I, can I do that on my Microsoft Excel? You could. Yeah, I think probably the best way to do it would be you should email Jeff Zimmerman or David Appleton and ask them to do it for okay. you, knowing you. I, I would just suggest that you uh, hire someone to do okay. it for you. That sounds reasonable. Yep. Mm. What was it? Wait, what were we talking about there? Uh, your mathematical oh, yeah, game odds. inadequacy. Game, yeah, right. Well, that partially. But game odds. Have any of the game odds surprised you to date? Or I, alternatively, or additionally, what have you learned from them? Well, I think the post I wrote when they rolled out was kind of the, the number one reminder that home field advantage actually does matter in baseball. 
Uh, and sometimes maybe more than we think. I mean, there have been a few where, you know, I think like the Dodgers were playing the Padres last week. And to me, the Dodgers are clearly better than the Padres. It's not even all that close. I think the Dodgers are probably 10 or 15 wins better than the Padres over the course of the season. Uh, and then the Padres were favored to win the game. And I was like, oh, that's, yeah, it can't be right. That looks wrong. And then I realized that, oh, well, you know, the, the Padres are throwing Andrew Kashner and they're at home. And these two things really matter. Like a worse team with a good pitcher on the mound playing at home can, can be a favorite over a, a good team. I think uh, Jeff Sullivan wrote about this in October and, um, you know, we've, so we've seen it over time is if you look at like, you know, a six win player, uh, you know, that's about the equivalent of home field advantage. It's about a 54, 46 swing. If you take two neutral teams, even 500 teams, and you put Mike Trout on one or Miguel Cabrera on one, you're going to get about the same advantage as if you put one team at home and the other on the road. Uh, and you know, I think if we took two even 500 teams and we gave one of them Miguel Cabrera, we'd be like, oh yeah, that's now the favorite. What do, um, so why I would, a team should find a way, devise a way to play all of its games at home, and that way. That is the new market inefficiency is blowing up all other 29 stadiums. Yeah. What do you yeah. think about that? I think uh, you'd be in jail, and it would probably be difficult to reap the profits. That's, good, that's a good point. Could yeah. you? Do we know what happens if a team? So, for example, in San Francisco, yeah. uh, San Francisco and Oakland are quite close to each other. They are. If San Francisco, if the Giants were to put, to play Oakland at Oakland, mm-hmm. would we assume that Oakland, uh, all other things being equal, would demonstrate the same sort of home field advantage, or would they not? I think this is an area that's still to be studied a little bit more. We don't actually know the the whys of home field advantage and why they break down. I mean, there's been, you know, there's a book written a few years ago called Scorecasting that tried to break down home field advantage and said that most of it was based on umpire bias and that the umpires were subconsciously uh, favoring the home team because they didn't want to get booed and so they were just giving calls to the to the, what the crowd wanted, uh, not necessarily on purpose, but just in their in their minds. This has been mostly debunked by guys like Phil Birnbaum, who have shown that their findings are probably not as uh, strong as they as they believed. And it looks like there's probably some uh, factors related to home field that aren't umpires or referees or whatever. Uh, travel seems to be a, a good deal of uh, what we would expect it to be. We don't know for sure, but it seems likely that if a team flies across the country and stays in a hotel, they're going to perform worse than a team that gets to go home to their own bed and commute to the ballpark. And um, uh, you wouldn't have the travel factor in, in a San Francisco-Oakland game because both teams would presumably be sleeping at their own houses and not flying anywhere. But we don't know how much of a factor that is of the 54-46 uh, what what moves the needle, whether it's uh, umpires or travel or uh, familiarity with their park or the team's ability to construct a roster that plays well to their strong suits in that ballpark. We don't know. Do you think that players are more likely to to go out late at night if they're on the road because, for example, you know their uh, their wives are not there or something like that? Certainly possible. I think uh, you know there's a, probably a bunch of lifestyle things that we wouldn't necessarily think of as non ball players that probably matter a decent amount to the ballplayers themselves. And maybe they'd say, oh, yeah, it makes perfect sense that I'm not going to play as well uh, on the road because, you know, I drink more when my wife's not around. And, mm-hmm. you know, you know, there's probably uh, temptations on the road that don't exist at home. Uh, I drink more when my wife's not around and when she is around. That's true. We I, we had to make two beer runs for you when you were hanging out with us Yeah, it was weekend. good. Yeah, well, my wife wasn't around. Right, so there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, Dave Cameron, is there there anything we have not addressed that you think would make this complete? Uh, 
Yeah, I, days I, yet. yeah. I, I feel like we have given short shrift to Emilio Bonifacio, the current Major League War leader. I mean, who didn't see that coming, right? <laughs> he, uh, where, he was with the Blue Jays last year, maybe for a part of he, the year. He, he was, yeah. Yeah. And what, what, for whom does he play now? Uh, he, he's now with the Cubs. Uh, he was with the Royals at the end of last season. I think the Royals acquired him mid-season, I believe. Uh, and then they, they went to arbitration with him, gave him like three and a half million dollars in arbitration or settled, uh, for the midpoint, got him to spring training and said, no, we don't want to pay you three and a half million dollars. They cut him. Hmm. Uh, they had to pay him like six hundred thousand dollars or something in severance. Made him a free agent. He signed a minor league deal with the Cubs. Uh, but it was a minor league deal that was like one of those like wink, wink, nod, nod, we'll put you on the roster on opening day minor league deals. Uh, yeah, is that actually, is that language written in the contract or is that? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, yeah, it's actually called a wink, wink, nod, nod deal. That's okay, like, yeah. that's the contract they file. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, uh, basically the Cubs, you know, gave him, uh, a, a deal that would pay him not terribly different than he got in Kansas City. It's a little less. Uh, but the Cubs are, have basically made him their center fielder and, are hitting him lead off and he had a pretty good first week. Yeah, he has. It seems like, a well, he's making contact and when he makes contact, it's, uh, it's going places. He's doing what you told Billy Hamilton to do. Yeah, right. ball on the ground and, and good things will happen. Yeah, right. I didn't say ground. I didn't say ground. It's just put it in fair play. Put it in play. Right. Put, put it in play and, and good things will happen. I mean, all things being equal, you should try and put the ball in play if you're swinging. All uh, things being equal. Yeah, all things are not equal, but yeah. I would say That's even true. even with the things not being particularly equal, if you're going to swing, put the ball into fair play. I think that depends on who you are. Is I think uh, that's that's probably not good advice for Jose Bautista, or you know, like a really powerful uh, guy with an uppercut swing. If he's just trying to make contact, he's probably making weak contact. He should either try and hit the ball 400 feet or miss. Okay, you're you're, you're perverting my words a little bit, but it's uh, that's fine. I mean, you do that a lot, so people will become accustomed to that. I, I try. Okay. All right. Well, you're done then. You've uh, okay. you've fulfilled your obligations. Well, then I then I will go watch some baseball. Oh yeah. What are you gonna What are you gonna be watching there? Well, I've been watching the Reds Cardinals as we speak. The uh, Cardinals are up three nothing thanks to a Yadier Molina bases clearing double, mm-hmm. uh, which is of course not surprising because he plays for the Cardinals and the Cardinals hit like 900 with runners in scoring position. Yeah. Do you think that's? But you but you think it actually? You don't actually think that's a skill, or do you? No, mm-hmm. no, I do not. And I think you know, like the over the last week, the Cardinals' offense has been kind of terrible. So, okay. uh, the, you know, relative to their first week performance, so that actually was a surprise. Right. Uh, but yeah, that was tongue in cheek. Okay, Josh Hamilton uh, should be noted with three walks today. He was facing the Astros, so they don't count. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. All right. Well, you go do what you go do. Why don't you stick around for one second, though? We can discuss uh, some posts I have to to go up the site. But um, fantastic. Uh, all right. But that is uh, that is. Thank you, Dave Cameron. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that is uh, Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. The actual managing editor. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.